Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the next USU uh, Blue Plate research event, uh, we uh, will feature a presentation, USU Will, by USU professor Gregory Madden titled Impulsivity, Poor Decisions, and What to Do About It. Dr. Madden explores uh, that we all hate to wait and how extreme forms of this leads to uh, habitually impulsive decision-making. He joins us today to talk about his research, which has applications for public health, including substance use disorders, pathological gambling, and obesity. Dr. Madden is a professor and chair of behavior analysis in the M. Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Service, and uh, he's a recipient of the D. Wayne Wynn uh, Thorne Career Research Award at USU, uh, many other honors as well in his uh, career. Uh, let me uh, give you details on the presentation before we jump in here. Uh, the presentation is Friday, September 9th at the Gallivan Hall in downtown Salt Lake City. It will feature a 30-minute presentation, live Q&A, free lunch for all attendees. You need to RSVP, and you can do that at blueplateresearch.usu.edu, blueplateresearch.usu.edu. Um, Professor Madden, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks, Tom. Um, I guess among everything else, you have a textbook out as well. I have a textbook out. It's called An Introduction to Behavior Analysis. Yeah, that's a feather in your cap. Uh, (laughs) So that's that's wonderful. And you told me before we went on the air here that uh, this past year has been a a nice year for a lot of travel, your sabbatical year. Yep, we were on sabbatical and traveled to, well, visited with professors and researchers that I work with in four different countries. Um. So I guess you can you probably divide uh, the research that you're involved in into t- t- two areas, right? It's sure. animals and humans. Yeah. Uh, tell me first about the the, the animal uh, research. What? Uh, give me an over overview first of all. Okay. Kind of kind of the state of the research right now. Yeah. So the animal research that I do is focused on this topic of the blue plate plate uh, lunch special is um, uh, impulsive decision making. And so with the animals, what we do um, to operationalize impulsive decision-making is we, we try to get at um, their ability or their inability to wait for something that they want. And the way that we do that is we ask them, which of these two rewards would you prefer? Would you like to have one piece of food right now? Or would you like to wait for, oh, let's say 20 seconds in order to get two pieces of food? Now, for a human, that would be an easy choice. We have no problem with waiting for 20 seconds in order to get twice as much of a reward that we want. But for a rat, that's an interminable delay. <laughs> and so they oftentimes will choose the, the smaller, more immediate reward. And there are individual differences in rats. Some rats are really quite good at waiting, and they can tolerate delays of up to, let's say, 30, 40 seconds without any problem. Other rats need to have it now. Uh, They want that one piece of food now, and they don't seem to be able to wait. We see the same thing with humans as well. There's a lot of individual differences in our ability to wait in order to obtain the things that we want in life. And so we study those individuals in rats. And so, for example, in some research that I did a number of years ago, we looked at um, you know, we tested a large group of rats, and we found that this group of rats over here, this group is very impulsive. They need to have their food right now, and they're willing to give up uh, more food later in order to get it. 
this group of rats over here, they're quite self-controlled. And then after we uh, determined these two groups of rats, the impulsive and the not impulsive, then we tested them in a drug-taking situation. We gave them the opportunity to press a lever, and when they did, they were able to uh, have a small amount of cocaine. Um, and as turns out that the impulsive rats were much more likely to press that lever for the cocaine. They all had to press the lever to sample it, but the impulsive rats were much more likely to press that lever and uh, regularly take cocaine at uh, higher, higher amounts. I, I just want to follow up on, yeah. on the individuality, yes. right? And um, I guess you just come to it cold, you know, a rat's like any other rat, but I guess if you think about it, you know, <laughs> dogs have personalities, yeah. horses, cats, rats yeah. are going to have different personalities too. Yeah, that's right. Um, there are different strains of rats, just like there are different breeds of dogs, and just like different breeds of dogs have very different personalities or you know uh, behavioral traits, we see the same thing in different strains of rats. And so there's some strains that are we've done tests with them in our lab before. Some strains um, are very impulsive. And those, as it turns out, those strains of rats are also uh, drug takers. They're much more likely to take drugs than other strains of rats who, uh, who opposite, uh, show a lot of self-control. They're able to wait in order to get what they want. Yeah. So you, uh, you do the initial test and mm -hmm. just kind of separate them out, the yes. impulsive ones and non-impulsive yeah. ones, and then you do the uh, do the next test. What are some of the percentages? To this? I guess they're... A lot yeah. of differences. Yeah. yeah, in those experiments, what we do is we do what's called a tertile split, <laughs> which basically means we, we split the group of rats up into three groups, the most impulsive, the least impulsive, and the ones in the middle. And, um, and when you look at the, the most impulsive group and the least impulsive group, that's where you see the big difference in terms of uh, drug-taking behavior. Mm -hmm. The, um, I haven't done this research, but some of the people I've collaborated with, they also find that the impulsive rats are more likely to relapse to drug use. So after they're uh, not given the opportunity to take drugs anymore, and then they encounter a drug cue, they're more likely to start pressing that lever again in order to obtain drugs. Um, sometimes they get the drugs, but sometimes in the tests that they do, they don't actually get the drugs, and we just see how much are they willing to press that lever. And Yeah. They see a cue and they they go after it for mm -hmm. the drug that they want. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, it, what are some of the latest experiences? What, mm -hmm. what, what's the frontier of what you're trying to do with rats? Yeah. So you know, we had uh, we we actually done that uh, rat research because of some research that we'd done with humans years before. And that research with humans, um, we had tested individuals who were in treatment for a substance use disorder. And we gave them a very similar type of test. Obviously, they weren't waiting for one food pellet versus two food pellets, but we were asking them, which would you rather have, a small amount of money now or a much larger amount of money in a year? <clears throat> and what we found was um, those individual differences. Those individuals who were in treatment for substance dependence, they... Um, they were very impulsive. They couldn't wait in order to have a larger amount of money later. And the control group, um, who was not in treatment, they weren't drug takers, they'd never taken drugs, but they had, um, we had matched them in terms of their IQ and their income and things like that. They showed substantially less impulsive decision making. So when we moved into the rat lab, it was actually um, 
building on something that we'd seen in the humans, which was there is this correlation between um, extreme forms of impulsivity and drug taking as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what you're talking about there, I think, is. is uh, it's called a port of indifference, right? The, the, yeah. Where, you know, you, you reduce the amount of money That's right. that you can get now. That's right? right, yeah. And I guess for some people, it has to go pretty low. It does have to go pretty low. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, people, so like payday loans, <laughs> yeah. you know, is kind of uh, like this in that you, an individual who is uh, willing to take a payday loan, they need the money now. And they're willing to sacrifice a lot in the future um, because they're going to have to pay back more in the future in order to secure that that loan today. And so, uh, yeah, they're in difference point um, between the money later and the money now. They'll take substantially less money now in order to, you know, get themselves oftentimes out of a financial bind that they find themselves in. Yeah. Yeah. What do the experiments in rats tell mm-hmm. us, uh, if anything, yeah. about uh, nature nurture? So, you know, we, we're born with certain genes and yeah. we can be taught certain things. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's clear that um, we see in the, the strain differences in rats um, that there um, are these individual differences that are undoubtedly related to genes. Um, the genetic research on impulsivity is, is kind of inconclusive at this point. It's a complicated behavior and therefore the, there's not a simple, you know, gene for impulsivity or anything like this at this point. So that is ongoing area of research. But yeah, there's clearly a, a balance between the nature and the nurture. And the, and the work that we're doing with rats right now is really designed, uh, to say, okay, we accept the fact that nature is influencing this behavior, this impulsive tendency. But that doesn't mean you need to throw up your hands and say there's nothing we can do about it. Um, There's always a nurture part of the equation as well. And so that's the therapeutic work that we try to do. And much of the work that we are trying to do now is with rats. And the reason that we're studying uh, how to do therapy with rats to reduce their impulsive decision-making is because we want to um, perfect it, if you will. Um, we want to put together a, an intervention, a therapy that works reliably with rats um, before we would roll it out with humans. We'd, we want to do the do no harm um, and make sure that it works with the rats beforehand. It is true that um, um, we can learn a lot from rats. Um, This is true, um, especially in the area of behavior. A lot of the things that we know uh, about rats also applies to humans. Uh, So, for example, if we look at um, how it is that we devalue future consequences. So we know that the value of, let's say, that $1,000 reward, if if you could have $1,000 right now, how much is that worth to you? It's worth $1,000 because I get it right now. But if I say that uh, $1,000 in a year, what's that worth? What's the indifference point between getting $1,000 in a year and having some amount of money right now? Um, it might be $500. Maybe you would take $500 right now and give up the $1,000 um, in the future. So if we look at um, how it is that we devalue future consequences, they lose value because they're delayed. We don't want to wait. Um, the the same curve that describes how humans devalue future consequences, that same curve that fits the data, that exact same curve fits rats' data 
as well. And it fits pigeons' data as well. And it fits monkeys' data mm. as well. And so this seems to be something that um, through natural selection, we have acquired this tendency to devalue future consequences. And we all seem to do it. All of us species seem to do it in, you know, remarkably similar ways. Now, there's big differences between the species in terms of how much we devalue it. Because like before, I said that rats can't wait for 20 or 30 seconds and humans don't have a problem with that at all. Um, so the amount that we devalue it, it's different across the species. But the shape of the curve that fits our data um, this is really great for radio, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. let, let the record show that, uh, that Dr. Madden is, is moving his hands in a curved it, it, uh, way. It's like yeah. the, uh, the shape yeah. of the curve is kind of like a slide. Right. You know? right. So a kid going down a slide. It's real steep at the beginning, but at the end, it kind of flattens out. And so that's the shape of the curve um, that describes how we devalue. It goes down quickly at the beginning, that is, as um, at short delays, we devalue. We don't want to wait at all. So a short delay is, for example, um, we see a yellow light. And that means that, hey, if you stop now, you have to experience a short delay. Mm. You know, what's the longest light in town? Three minutes is mm. how long that light is. And so sometimes we choose, yeah, forget that. I'm going through the yellow, right, maybe even right. the red. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we've all done that. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, and we've all made the choice, ah, oh, better stop this time, right? It's, yeah. It's kind of, yeah. So, so what do we make of the, the fact that that curve in uh, in a Pretty much all species that mm -hmm. we've we've studied is, yeah. is similar. What, what do we make of that? What do we make? Um, I love it, actually. <laughs> I mean, I love it because it tells me that I can uh, conduct this research with the rats, and it's likely to tell me something really useful about how to positively influence human behavior. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, it it makes it much easier for me to do my research, and frankly. I think it makes it better, again, because I'm not going into preschools. I'm not disrupting preschools with, you know, therapies that I think might work but have never been tested before. And some of them might actually do harm conceivably. And so, yeah, let's work the kinks out of this in the rat lab first um, before we go into the preschool. And mm -hmm. I, I should say one thing also about rat lab. I mean, I, I know a lot of listeners are concerned about animal research, and I'd like them to know that the research that I do with rats is, is incredibly humane. We don't do anything aversive at all to um, the rats. They're treated very, very well. They work for nothing but rewards during the course of the experimental sessions. They get a safe place to sleep. They have veterinary care. It's a good program for, for the rats. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so the, the I guess the hopeful, the very promising part of this is can you change behavior, yes. right? Yes. And the, so yeah. what is your experiments on, what do your experiments on rats yeah. tell you about that? Yeah. Do you give you hope that the behavior can be changed? Yeah, we've done a number of uh, studies over the last 10 years trying to reduce impulsive choice in rats. And we've... Uh, tried a number of methods, um, and, and several of them have worked. And so probably the simplest of these methods um, is it really just involves um, giving rats lots of experience with delays. And so we have 
two groups of rats. One group of rats gets a lot of experience with delays. And so from a fairly early age uh, through their middle year, or not years, <laughs> their middle months of a rat's life, um, they press a lever, and instead of getting the food now, um, they have to wait for 15 seconds. Um, and that's what they do. That's what their training is. That's what their therapy is, is they just have to wait in order to get what they want. And the other group of rats, they press the same lever. They get the same reward. It's just that they get it now. And so I like to think of these two groups as the, you know, the good parent group who asks their children in a strategic way to, uh, um, to just, just wait, quietly wait. Um, for what it is that you want. Uh, demonstrate some patience. Demonstrate a little bit of self-control. Um, don't ask for too much from very young children, but uh, um, just give them the opportunity to learn something about, um, about waiting patiently. The other group is kind of the bad parent that uh, gives their children whatever they want immediately all the time. And when we subsequently test those rats in an impulsive choice situation where they're choosing between that one food pellet now and... Uh, uh, twice as much or three times as much uh, food after a 20, 30 second delay, there's a pretty big difference between those uh, two groups. So that's the simplest method that pretty reliably works. We've published seven or eight papers on that now that shows that it uh, works with lots of different rats with different strains and uh, delays, things like that. Yeah, that, that is promising. Mm -hmm. uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, your uh, your work with preschoolers. You've also done work with uh, elementary school kids and dietary choices. We'll talk about uh, those ex uh, studies as well. Uh, we have with us um, Gregory Madden. He is a professor and chair of behavior analysis in the M. Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Service. He is giving a USU Blue Plate research uh, presentation that event is coming up on Friday, September 9th at the Gallivan Hall in downtown Salt Lake City. It'll feature his presentation, a Q&A, and a free lunch for all attendees. You need to RSVP, and you can do that at blueplateresearch.usu.edu. Blueplateresearch.usu.edu. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking uh, with uh, Professor Gregory Madden. He is a chair of behavior analysis in the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Service. He specializes in behavioral economics and his research examines decision making, specifically impulsivity and delayed gratification. This, of course, has uh, correlation or uh, implications for substance use disorders, pathological gambling, and obesity. Uh, he's giving a presentation in the USU Blue Plate Research Series. And uh, that event is going to, going to happen on Friday, September 9th, Gallivan Hall, downtown Salt Lake City. And uh, lunch is involved. So you can uh, RSVP to blueplateresearch.usu.edu, blueplateresearch.usu.edu. So, Dr. Madden, let's move to humans. Mm-hmm. You've uh, you've studied preschoolers. You mm -hmm. can't. You obviously can't do the same things with preschoolers <laughs> with rats, right? Yeah. Uh, ethical uh, considerations. What what, uh, what have you worked with preschoolers? Yeah. So uh, the work that we've done with preschoolers is is pretty preliminary. Um, we pre pandemic we started a study um, in the preschool setting. 
And we were trying to take some of the uh, um, effects that we were getting with with the rats and use the same kind of uh, therapeutic training uh, methods with preschoolers who had been identified as having some impulse control problems. And that was, um, I mean, we got good effects. I'll say that first. Um, you know, the children beforehand had a problem with, for example, waiting their turn. And they would throw a temper tantrum when they had to wait their turn in something. And at the end of the interventions that we did, um, those children waited three, four, five times as long as they did before. So it was, it was encouraging. But I think I learned something really important in doing that study, um, which again came to an end um, quite early because of the pandemic. We had to stop doing the research. But I learned something uh, important in doing that research, which was what we were doing took too much time. <laughs> you know, the training sessions that we were doing, we had to take the children out of the preschool um, regular um, uh, activities, planned activities for the day. And we had to do these one-on-one -on -one, uh, training sessions, much like we would do with the rat. And again, it worked, but uh, on average, the kids um, required 30 training sessions, and that's just impractical. And we realized uh, fairly quickly in this process that, um, you know, for research purposes, that's fine. But in terms, if you want to do a prevention program in preschools, for example, throughout the state of Utah. Well, no preschool is going to sign up for that. And so there's just no way that what we were doing, although it was effective, there's no way we can actually implement that uh, at scale. And so the pandemic was kind of an opportunity for us to say, stop, stop what you're doing. This is dumb. Um, go back to the lab and see if you can figure out how to do this intervention more efficiently. And so we just kind of threw in the towel, if you will, on the old method, which in, even in rats took a minimum of 60 days to do the training. And so we started thinking, well, what could we do that could produce this kind of effect much more rapidly? And so we have taken a different tactic. I won't get into too many technical details other than to say it's based on Pavlovian learning. And so most people have heard of Pavlov's dog and the kind of learning that Pavlov's dog does. That's the kind of learning that we're trying to tap into. This kind of learning is a, a learning that if this happens, then that will happen. Okay, so if, if the bell rings, then food will be inserted into the dog's mouth thereafter, and the dog begins to salivate when it hears the bell. It learns that the bell is important because it tells me that something else important is about to happen. And so what we're doing with rats right now is we're doing Pavlovian training with the rats where we uh, present a stimulus, and then that stimulus is predictive of something good, like food. And they learn that in most of the time they're in about five sessions, but we do eight sessions of training to make sure that all of the rats have got it down. And then what we do is we use that stimulus and we present that stimulus with the larger, later self-control choice opportunity. We say, would you rather have a small piece of food now or look over here, here's your friend, that stimulus that's always predicted food was coming. Um, it's over there. And the rats see that. They see it like, hey, it's my friend. <laughs> they run over there and they find the lever over there that they press. They have to wait for the delay. They get the food that they want. That produces a pretty big effect. And so 
in a human preschool setting, the teacher, if they're able to establish some stimulus as a Pavlovian stimulus, so let's say a yellow card, doesn't really have any function, it doesn't mean anything to the child, but after Pavlovian training, when the child sees the yellow card, they will learn, when I see yellow card, something awesome is about to happen. Okay, so if the teacher has been able to teach all of the kids in the class, yellow card means something awesome is about to happen, then when the teacher is asking a child, can you wait, they may ask, can you wait while holding the yellow card out to the child? And child sees the yellow card and they think, something awesome is about to happen if I say, yeah, I'll wait. And so we may be able to induce the child, if you will, to, to wait. The other way that we can use this Pavlovian yellow card stimulus is we can, um, we can use it as a reward. So not only does it tell us that something awesome is going to happen, but it also rewards behavior. And so in rat studies and human studies, uh, rats and humans and monkeys, etc., they'll all work to produce that yellow card because it means something awesome is about to happen. And so we can use it as a reward. So if a child makes a self-control choice, if they're successfully waiting quietly, then we can hand them the yellow card and say, hey, you're doing an awesome job. And so it functions as a reward. It encourages that behavior again in the future, but it also signals to the child, hey, keep waiting. Something awesome is about to happen. Mm -hmm. And so it just gives the teacher a tool, this yellow card, that allows them to encourage the right choice and then to reward the right choice and to signal to the child, stick with it. You're on the right track. Something awesome is about to happen. So that's the idea for a prevention program that could be done in schools. Again, this could be done. We wouldn't, we wouldn't even not take the kids out of class at all. All of this Pavlovian training can be done during the course of regular education. Teachers would have to do almost nothing to do this kind of uh, training in the schools. But, you know, we got to do it with rats first. Right, right. <laughs> what, what's it looking like now? It's looking good. The, yeah. The, with yeah, rats, okay. Yeah, yeah. We've, mm -hmm. we're, we've got an ongoing experiment where we use the, the yellow card, if you will, mm -hmm. as an inducer to help the, the rats make the right choice. We're getting, I mean, it's a small group of rats at this point, but it's already a, a significant difference. Then we use the, with a another experiment, we use the yellow card as a consequence of making the right choice, and we're seeing the same kind of benefits there. Yeah. A little bit later in yeah. the program, uh, I want to move this to adults, and you know, could could we use the yellow card ourselves? <laughs> that, that there's some yeah. complications there, yeah, but yeah. But uh, first, I want to ask you about uh, this uh, study you did uh, in elementary schools yeah. with dietary choices. Yep, Pretty that's right. Tell me, understand? Uh, you started out one way and then yeah. made some changes. Yeah. Tell me, tell me how it began. Yeah. So when I started at Utah State University, uh, Heidi Wengreen, who is a uh, professor here in the Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food Sciences uh, program, she reached out and said, hey, I understand you do behavioral economics. Would you like to um, do a project in the schools where we're going to use a program that was developed in uh, England and Wales and uh, seems to be very effective over there. We want to bring it over here and see if it works. It was an incentive-based program. So the kids, um, if they ate their fruits and vegetables at lunchtime, they would get uh, a little incentive for doing it, um, a little uh, prize or something like that. you know. Um, and so um, we did it. 
and uh, it worked. <laughs> and that's great. But the schools hated it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the reason why is because it was too much work. Um, again, you know, um, schools, they have an educational mandate. That's their job. It is not to put together an incentive program and implement an incentive program in school cafeteria. That's not their job. And so, yeah, the schools didn't like it, and I don't blame them. Um, and so right about the time that we were going to give up on this line of research because it was just we weren't going to be able to get you know, put together something that schools would like, and so it would never be implemented at scale. Um, we decided, in part because my son <laughs> came came down to me one day with his laptop, and he said, uh, Dad, take a look at this. It's all about gamification. And I didn't know much about gamification at the time, but he showed it to me because they were talking about behavioral economics and rat research and things like that. Um, and so I started studying gamification um, and trying to think about, is there some way that we could do a gamified version of this um, fruit and vegetable program, but it would involve zero tangible incentives. Nothing would be like a toy. Nothing would be a prize. Nothing like that. So it would be free. Instead, all the incentives would be in the game. Um, so you would earn things that would allow you to advance in the game. All this narrative science fiction adventure game is what we put together. And so that's what we did. We implemented this in the school cafeteria. Teachers didn't have to do anything. So before, teachers had to do all these things that we asked them to do. In this new program, teachers didn't have to do anything. All, they, all that happened was the kids came into the cafeteria. They saw this you know, slideshow up on the, uh, the screen in the cafeteria, which was this science fiction comic book adventure story that they read at their own pace. <clears throat> and then there was all these incentives, you know, if you guys eat your fruits and vegetables, it'll, it'll help these heroes to defeat the bad guys in this science fiction adventure game. Lo and behold, it worked just as well as the actual tangible incentives. Didn't cost anything <laughs> to implement it other than have a projector to, to show the slideshow up in the cafeteria. Mm. And the kids loved it. You know, it was they, they thought it was fun. Mm. Yeah. And the results were, I guess, yeah, the results promising. Were great. They, they yeah. ate more fruits and vegetables. They ate they, more fruits yeah. and vegetables. Mm -hmm. We published three papers <laughs> uh, demonstrating this effects in three or four different schools. And yeah, it was it was pretty good. Yeah. And understand, uh, everybody in this, all the kids were on the same team, right? Yep, so they're all on the no same team. Yeah, absolutely. Cheating or anything? No, we didn't you know. want. Yeah, and that was actually one of the things that we were trying to avoid from the old incentive program was that kids were cheating, too. And so, you yeah. know, we were inducing kids with these tangible rewards mm -hmm. to cheat. And so that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> and so with the new program, nobody would cheat because everybody was on the same team. You right. know, so any one child, there's just no way that they would be motivated sufficiently to cheat for a team of 300 people because your small amount of cheating isn't going to matter in the yeah. outcome because it's based on all of the kids in the cafeteria. Yeah. So it just takes the motivation to cheat right mm -hmm. out of the game. And understand some, uh, the, the original model, the, some of the parents objected uh, yeah. because they said, hey, Johnny ought to be eating his fruits and vegetables anyway. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yep. On the other hand, uh, you know, if you're, you're a parent, you, you, you walk that line, right? Yep. It's a balance between incentivizing and using some of these techniques yeah. And, yeah. And, and thinking that, uh, you know, yep. Sally just has to do it yeah. because, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a, um, 
this is a complaint that I've heard many, many times over the course of my career is that really people really ought to just want to do the right thing. And, uh, and that sounds good until you really start scratching the surface of it. But the fact of the matter is that we all do things because of consequences, because of these incentives of our behavior. So if somebody removed the incentives for my <laughs> behavior at the university, I would stop coming to the university, yeah. you know, to do my job. You know, I'd, I wouldn't have any choice but, you know. To, to stop doing it. I have to go find somebody that would incentivize my behavior so that I could put dinner on the table for yeah. my family. So, right. Yep. And it's, you know, yeah, there's just there's just so many incentives in our daily lives that we just don't really think about, um, but they are responsible for a lot of the things that we do. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, that argument that we really ought to want to be a good person, we really ought to want to, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, but we there don't. better be we incentives. Don't, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the other th- thing here is the serendipity of this, right? You're stuck. Yep. You do research, and you yep. you find the solution from your son. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. that was that was that was a pretty good one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's common in the sciences is that sometimes the solutions come. When you're at rock bottom, so it, mm. you know it's like uh, I was ready to give up that line of research altogether um, because I didn't, I couldn't find a way to to solve it. And yeah, in life that that happens. You're mm. at rock bottom. It's like boom, you got to do something different. Mm. And and when you do, it oftentimes lead to something better. And same thing with the pandemic, you know, with which ended our research line in the preschools. You know, had that not happened, we probably just would have stayed the course but the pandemic allowed us to take a smack in the face and understand that what you're doing is not practical um so think of something else and you've got two years to figure it out and that's when the preschools will be open again yeah yeah let's take another break uh when we come back i want to apply this to adults um which i assume would be the majority of our listeners uh we're probably wondering uh you know it's great in rats and it's great in kids Maybe help me as a parent, right? But what about me? How can I get myself to, you know, to stop eating that bad food right now? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, Practical applications for our lives. We'll get into that uh, when we uh, come back. We're talking with uh, USU professor Gregory Madden. He is chair of behavior analysis in the M. Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Service. And um, he is uh, going to give a presentation in the USU Blue Plate Research Series. That'll be Friday, September 9th at Gallivan Hall in Salt Lake City. And it features a 30-minute presentation, live Q&A, and free lunch for all attendees. You need to RSVP, and you can do that at blueplateresearch.usu.edu, blueplateresearch.usu.edu. More following this. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with uh, Gregory Madden. He's professor and chair of behavior analysis in the M. Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services, um, and he specializes in behavioral economics research. Uh, examines decision making, specifically impulsivity and delayed gratification. We're talking about that uh, today. That'll be the um, the uh, thrust of his uh, presentation coming up in the USU Blue Plate Research event. Uh, his presentation titled Impulsivity, Poor Decisions, and What to Do About It. That'll be happening Friday, September 9th at Gallivan Hall in Salt Lake City. And uh, you can RSVP. It'll include lunch as well. You can RSVP to blueplateresearch.usu.edu, blueplateresearch.usu.edu. 
So, Dr. Madden, let's bring this uh, to adults. Mm-hmm. Um, are there applications? Uh, well, let's take healthy eating. We, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think most of and many of us struggle with this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I certainly um, can make some bad choices um, about the foods that I eat. There's a lot of research that demonstrates that we are much better at making choices if we make the choice when we're not staring at the temptation that we can eat right now. So, for example, I like tacos. And so if somebody says, hey, let's go to lunch and it's Taco Tuesday, do you want to go? I'm really likely to say yes to that. And it's because... Something that I really like is pretty immediately available, and it's really hard for me to say no to an immediate reward like that. And that's the impulsive choice because the it means that I'm giving up on all of my healthy eating goals that are going to lead to better consequences down the road. And so what we do know is that people are bad at making choices if they are faced with an immediate temptation, but they're really good at making choices if they could just back up in time and make the choice in the morning before lunchtime. And so the way that I do this is um, when I go to work, I pack a lunch, um, and it's a healthy lunch because when it's not lunchtime, it's really easy for me to make rational, healthy decisions about – Oh, well, future Greg wants to eat a salad. <laughs> Whereas, you know, at lunchtime, present Greg wants to eat tacos. And so it's easy for me to make a choice for future Greg um, at lunchtime. So I pack a salad in the morning. And so I'm kind of committing myself to eating a healthy lunch because in order for me to reverse that commitment at lunchtime and go eat tacos instead, I got to throw the salad away. And I don't like to waste food. Most listeners don't like to waste food. And so that's just kind of a soft commitment. You could always override it, of course. Um, but it is it does increase the probability that you'll eat the healthy lunch. And so it gives you an excuse if nothing else. Somebody says, hey, you want to go to Taco Tuesday? I say, yeah, I got this salad. I got to eat this salad. So. Yeah. And it increases the, the cost, I guess, of a it does bad increase decision. The cost. You'd have to throw away that food or yeah. whatever. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And so people have done research in in cafeterias as well. So they'll ask the children to make their um, uh, dietary choices in the morning as soon as they get to uh, class. And that helps them to make the right choice as well. Even little kids can <laughs> do something like this. So, yeah, anytime you have the opportunity to make a choice early before you're faced with the immediate temptation and to the extent that you can lock yourself into that early choice by increasing the cost of reversing your decision, that's a strategy for helping you to um, make more self-control choices and stick with them as well. Mm. Yeah. A lot of your other research uh, deals with incentives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, and, you know, the, you do hear about programs mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, just informal stuff you can find on the Internet to – Let's take healthy eating again. Yeah. Incentivize yourself, right? Is, is, is What would you say about that? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know the research on those. I'm, a fam- I'm familiar that they exist, that people can get into uh, contests and things like that, that you can win you know, the big prize if you're the one who uh, um, sticks to your dietary goals the most or loses the most weight or things like that. I haven't 
studied the the uh, the results of those if they're effective or not. Those kinds of contests where only one person wins, the downside is is that a lot of people who are losing they drop out pretty quickly, mm. and they're just like, "Ah, screw it! I'm not gonna. There's no way for me to win this, and so I'm I'm out. I'm just gonna go back and relapse on all my uh, poor eating habits again, and so I'm not gonna do that." Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you say just in general about impulse control? We, I mean, we, we, most of us deal with this daily basis, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have things we know we ought to do, you know, we, we have things we know we need to delay or we should delay, right? Yeah. Uh, it, greater, greater reward then, but we, our impulse uh, says, you know, just, just do this now. And there's a cost to that, but you know, we kind of don't care, right? What, what would you say about <laughs> the lessons you've learned and everything about impulse control, that you could, general things that you could tell us? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it is oftentimes, but not always, uh, to our benefit to wait. Um, uh, you know, if, if you were a person who waited for everything, then, then that would be maladaptive and people would learn that that was the case, that you would always choose the, the later reward and they they would learn to take advantage of you if that was the case. So you have to be savvy about when to take it now and when to take it later. So, for example, if somebody says, uh, uh, if you loan me some money, uh, I will pay you back in two years, we're all savvy enough to to know that there's some chance that you'll never get that money back in, in two years. And we tend to learn the sort of people that we should trust with that um, and take the larger later reward because we are more likely to get it um, back in two years, um, oftentimes with interest and if not with financial interest, then with the interest of the goodwill of the person that we loan that to. And they're likely to repay the uh, uh, the kindness to us uh, again in the future. And that's kind of the, the larger later reward. But we learn... Uh, who to trust and who not to trust. And so just being uniformly self-controlled is not a good strategy through, uh, for going through life. The, in, uh, among humans, there is a, a line of research um, that's a, another strategy for improving one's self-control, and it's this uh, technique that's called episodic future thinking. And it's almost a, a meditative practice where you actually think about yourself in the future. And you actually think about what is it that I'm waiting for? And you try to think about the future consequence of your, your choice, your behavior today. Try to think about that in as concrete a terms as possible. Think about all the details. So for example, if you're trying to save money for a vacation, if you engage in episodic future thinking, you're going to think about everything about this vacation. Where would I go when I got there? What would I see? What would I smell? What would I hear? Just these kinds of concrete details. And so when we ask people to do this meditative exercise in the laboratory, it improves their chances of making choices for better future consequences um, later on. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that meditative approach, frankly, is something that uh, I do at red lights as well. Yeah. Is <laughs> <laughs> right. just, you know, yeah. uh, for a lot of folks, uh, myself included, uh, years ago, a red light was just an interminable delay. Um, but if you just try to reframe this 
this momentary delay as just eh, this is just an opportunity for me to to chill a little bit here mm-hmm. to to stop what I'm doing, stop what I'm thinking about, you know, whatever, and just relax for this moment. Then all of a sudden, delays become an opportunity as opposed to something that just cannot be tolerated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that can help you with impulse control at the yellow light, I guess, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, have you ever uh, needed to send a text, you know, and then you see a yellow, you know, you get a green light, oh, when am I going to be able to send this text? Yeah. You know, and then you see a yellow light and you're like, oh, thank goodness. Right. Here's an opportunity. <laughs> Now's yeah. an opportunity. Right. So, yeah, yeah, take that opportunity. Yeah. yeah. We just have a couple minutes left. Um, I want to ask you about... We've all gone through an experiment of sorts, the pandemic, right? Yeah. And and yeah. so some forced behavior changes. Absolutely. Some of those good. How do we how do we retain the good behavior changes from the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, how do we retain? <laughs> well, I think that. Um, Resist the opportunity to go back to old habits is, you know, because a lot of times when we go back to the old settings that we were in, these settings draw out of us old habits. So, you know, we talked about the fact that I was on sabbatical for the last 11 months and I was in new settings constantly. And so I noticed that my old habits were gone, you know, just small things, you know, small habits about, you know, take your shower at this time, you know, (laughs) brush your teeth afterwards. Because the settings that I exist in in my home, those settings, that is what my bathroom looks like, it draws these habitual behaviors out of me automatically without me thinking about it. When I'm in a new setting, I have to think about everything. So, when we post pandemic, we find ourselves in these old settings again, they can draw our old habitual behaviors out of us. If you recognize that, and if you can watch for old habits reemerging and be conscious of those, I think that's probably one of your best bets for being thoughtful about not getting back into uh, the old habits that uh, were problematic for you before and you wished you could leave behind permanently. Right, right. Yeah, good advice. Uh, We'll leave it there. You can uh, hear much more at uh, this uh, USU Blue Plate research event. Uh, And my guest today, Professor Gregory Madden, will be presenting uh, his presentation titled Impulsivity, Poor Decisions, and What to Do About It. Uh, So that presentation is Friday, September 9th at the Gallivan Hall in downtown Salt Lake City. It'll feature lunch for all attendees. You can RSVP at blueplateresearch.usu.edu, blueplateresearch.usu.edu. So, Dr. Madden, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Tom. It was fun. Appreciate that. And we'll go out as we do uh, always on Wednesdays with Beehive Archive. Thanks for listening. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Looking out at Great Salt Lake, you may have seen it before. A flash of pink wings and long legs. Wait, was that a flamingo? Find out more about Great Salt Lake's beloved pink visitor, Floyd. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. 
1988, a flamingo living at the Tracy Aviary in downtown Salt Lake City escaped and made a new home on Great Salt Lake. His name was Pink Floyd, and his yearly migrations attracted spectators and led some to suggest we should even import more flamingos for him to have a family. The Tracy Aviary originally had 10 flamingos, and staff clipped their wings regularly so they couldn't escape their Liberty Park home. Somehow, Floyd managed to skip wing clipping, and when he discovered he could fly, found his way to Great Salt Lake. Floyd was right at home there. Originally from Chile, his breed of flamingo is known for feasting on brine shrimp and living in terminal salt lakes at high elevations, just like ours. Great Salt Lake receives migratory birds every year from places as far away as Mexico and Russia, but Pink Floyd, as far as we know, was the only flamingo to grace its shores. Floyd quickly became a celebrity, enchanting bird watchers and confounding scientists. When the ranger patrolling Great Salt Lake first spotted Floyd and called in the sighting, he was called crazy and then asked, is there an elephant with him? Tracy aviary bird keepers considered trying to recapture him, but Floyd was smart. No bait would draw him away from the bountiful supply of brine shrimp. As one aviary staffer said, the habitat out here is marvelous, except for the lack of company. One group of fans, calling themselves Friends of Floyd, tried to remedy Floyd's suspected loneliness by raising money to bring 25 flamingos to Utah, but the idea never took off. Critics worried about a flock of flamingos disrupting Great Salt Lake's delicate ecology, and suggested visitors could instead appreciate the multitude of unique birds that already travel great distances to live on its shores. Floyd last made his winter journey to Great Salt Lake in 2005. He wasn't a mirage, and he wasn't just another brick in the wall. Pink Floyd was a legend who inspired Utahns to appreciate the wonderfully rare and unique ecology embodied by Great Salt Lake. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.